Find other great podcasts like this one at podmoth.network. Welcome to the Brutal, Bizarre, and Boozy podcast. I'm Declan, the son. And I'm Jane, the mom. This is the podcast where we talk about brutal crimes, bizarre occurrences, and get you drunk with cocktails themed around one of our stories. To lighten things up, we'd like to end our time with a chaser. Please keep in mind some of our stories might be upsetting to young or sensitive ears. We love hearing from our listeners, so feel free to contact us by email or social media. You can find our contact info in the show notes for this episode. If you'd like to support us through Patreon, you can find us there at Brutal, Bizarre, and Boozy Podcast, or use the link in our show notes. Welcome to the Getting Down and Wordy Podcast ad. What do we do on this podcast? Well, it's the first at a musical podcast. Can you try that again in real words so that people can understand? Fine. We talk about the intersection of popular music and language. Oh, can we also talk about Eurovision? Okay. Find us on Apple and Spotify. We are a Podmoth Network podcast. Well, Declan, what story do you have for us today? I'm going to be talking about Steve McCulloch. Who? He had an interesting encounter with a UFO. Oh, okay. A UFO story. Nice. Yes. What about you, Mom? What are you going to be telling us about today? I am going to be telling you about a serial killer who is also known, uh, his moniker is the Grocery Bag Killer. He's got a couple of other names, Spokane, Washington serial killer, the Spokane serial killer. Um, But his name is Robert Lee Yates Jr. We're going to be talking about him. Interesting. Let's get in. Yes. Okay. So for the drink that I brought with this story, I brought the apple whiskey sour because... I recently tasted them and I really, really liked them. And this story is out of Washington, which is the place where most of the U.S. apples are grown was in Washington State. So I brought the apple whiskey sour for us. And that drink is made with, I can't catch my breath. Okay, hold on. Hmm. It's made with three ounces of apple cider two ounces of bourbon, one ounce of lemon juice, a half to one ounce of maple syrup, half an ounce of fresh orange juice, and an optional egg white. You can garnish with an apple slice or a cinnamon stick or both, or don't garnish at all. And the steps are to combine the liquids in a cocktail shaker with ice Add uh, the lemon juice, orange juice, apple cider, maple syrup, the bourbon, and um, to combine those. If you're going to do it with an egg white and you want the egg white to be really frothy, dry shake the egg white first for about 30 seconds. Then add in all of your liquid ingredients and continue shaking. If you're not adding the egg white, then Just shake away with your liquid ingredients, strain it into a chilled glass, and then garnish with cinnamon sticks and a slice of apple. Are you ready? 
to try this apple whiskey sour. I am ready. I like that so much. This might be one of my new favorite drinks. at uh, At the Civil War party, right? Yes, it was. Yeah. Which, it's really good. for people who don't know, the Civil War Party is not the, not the <laughs> Civil War, but it's the football game between the two Oregon college football teams, the <laughs> yeah. Oregon State Beavers and the U of O Ducks, which may or may not be happening the in the future one? because, yeah. well... <laughs> Rumor has it that they're going to play off season. They're going to be preseason game from now on, but I don't know. So we'll have to wait until next football season to find out. But that's, yes, this is the drink I brought to that event. And I really like it. It's a yummy drink. I'm a fan. Yeah, it's super good. Okay, so we're going to go to Washington State. That is where Robert Lee Yates Jr. was born. He was born on May 27, 1952. He grew up in Oak Harbor, Washington, to a Seventh-day Adventist religious family. He was one of four children. Sometimes he was called Bob. He liked to play sports in school, including football and baseball. He enjoyed being outside hunting, camping, and spending time with a few friends. His high school friends considered him a trustworthy guy, and he has been described as meticulous. His teachers found him to be a good student who followed followed the rules. He graduated high school in 1970. In 1972, when Yates was 20 years old, he married his first wife, Shirley Nylander. The couple moved to College Place, Washington, and started college, with Yates intending to go to medical school. However, just a year and a half later, Shirley moved home with her parents, and she requested a divorce. In 1974, Yates married his second wife, Linda Brewer, and the couple eventually had five children. He had various jobs over the next few years, including working at a movie theater and as an usher and at Washington State Prison as a guard. None of these jobs lasted for very long until he joined the Army in 1977. He became a a pilot of both airplanes and helicopters and was stationed outside the U.S. on more than one occasion. He became... Oh, I already said that. He also served locally in different states, including New York and Alabama. Some of the time his family lived with him, while other times his wife and children lived in Washington State. Yates was a skilled helicopter pilot and taught other pilots. His students regarded him with respect, but said he was a fairly quiet man. He served in the military for 18 consecutive years and earned several medals and awards during that time. He retired almost two years early in 1996 when the Army was downsizing, and he moved back to Washington State permanently. 
During his active duty years, he would travel back to Washington State on occasion. Apparently missing the military life, he decided to join the Army National Guard a year after leaving active duty. So he was only out for a year. He retired fully, and then he was like, I'm going to go back. We actually know quite a few military people who do that because it pays really well, and they're fairly young. He served as a reservist in the Guard for three years from 1997 to 2000 and would travel to Tacoma monthly for training. Yates rotated through a few jobs during that time. Because he's just doing reservist, he's only serving on the weekends, it's like a basically. So job, he's pretty much, yeah. What? Yeah, exactly. So he still needed a, another job. So he had a few jobs that he was doing, but again, he kind of struggled through a few of them, and they were kind of short-term things. By all outward appearances, he seemed like an average family man, but he had a big strength secret of course and that's why we're talking about him i mean if he was just a dude that was in the military we wouldn't be talking about him there would be no story there hmm. starting um uh for years someone was targeting a vulnerable set of women in the spokane washington area specifically sex workers who often had a drug habit starting in 1996 women were disappearing from the streets uh, that they had worked on and later turning up dead, unfortunately. And over two years' time, at least 13 women, most of them sex workers, would end up dead. Many of them were shot with their heads covered by multiple plastic bags, which is why he gets the nickname the trash bag killer. Although I saw a couple of references say they were trash bags, I think one of them said they were like grocery bags. So I don't know. They were multiple plastic bags, like two and three layers of plastic bags. Yeah. Over their heads. In the beginning, the victims were deposited in places far away from where they had been taken. But over time, the killer seemed to be getting more brazen and placing the victims closer and closer to where they were last seen. Due to the many similarities between the victims before and after their deaths, the police started thinking the cases might be connected. There was now a concern that there was a serial killer on the loose. Police started evaluating who the women might have last been seen with. One victim, 16-year-old Jennifer Joseph, was found in a field with a gunshot wound to the head. As a teenager, Jennifer had become involved in drug use and later sex work. Forensic examination of her body did provide a DNA profile, but there was not a match in the system at the time. They also noticed a button was missing from her jacket. She was last seen getting into a white Corvette with a white male adult. At that time, Yates had a white Corvette. Police happened to stop Yates in this vehicle, but uh, over this period of time around these murders... Um, But he was not detained, and his connection to the case wasn't identified at the time. Apparently, there was like a field interview note, but uh, it said white Camaro in the notes, and it was actually a Corvette that he owned. And so they just discounted it as not being involved. 
He had been stopped for traffic violations on more than one occasion in the area where the sex workers were disappearing from, including one time where he was stopped with a known sex worker in the car. He claimed she was a friend's daughter, and he was giving her a ride in the middle of the night. More murder victims were found, and in 1977 and 1998, the frequency of the killings increased. Police had started developing a suspect list, and Yates was on that list. By September of 1999, investigators had questioned hundreds of potential suspects and asked them for blood samples. Yates was one of those suspects, but when asked for a blood sample, he refused. He actually made a comment like, that's a bit of an extreme request for just a married father or something along those lines. So he refused to give his DNA. About four months later, police located Yates's white, convert- uh, white Corvette. He had sold the car a few years earlier. The car was a key piece of information that they were looking for. In the vehicle, they found evidence linking Jennifer Joseph to Yates. Her blood was in the car, as well as carpet fibers, matching ones that were found on Jennifer's body. And imagine, the missing button. Imagine, imagine what? Car. And the feds just show up at your door one day like, hey, your car was used in a crime two or three years ago. We're going to take it now. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't that be scary? That oh, my gosh. Suck. That would suck. It would be so scary. I Although if that happened to us, it. we would definitely be telling everyone about it on our podcast because we'd be like, oh, my gosh, yeah, guys, guess sure. what? <laughs> So in the car, they also found the missing button from Jennifer's jacket. So they found her blood, carpet fibers matched, and the button was there. After being arrested for Jennifer's murder, police were able to link Yates to several other murders by his DNA. In April 2000, Yates was charged with Jennifer's murder and later charged with several others. While in custody, he confessed to other murders dating back to 1975, ones that were not sex workers. It was just a, the one in 1975 was just a couple that he had come across and he shot and killed them. He eventually pleaded guilty to 13 counts of murder. His plea deal allowed him to avoid the death penalty and he was sentenced to over 400 years in prison. However, Holy shit. Yeah. Can you imagine looking at that? 400 years. Like a vampire. (laughs) Right? So after he made that plea deal, remember, he made the plea deal so that he would avoid the death penalty. But right after that, another county came forward with two more charges, and they did seek the death penalty. And he was pissed because he thought that that plea deal was all-encompassing. And would include these other two charges. And they said, no, it doesn't. So he did get convicted on those two and was sentenced to death. His plea deal did not encompass those other, those secondary crimes. He was convicted of the two other murders and sentenced to death in 2002. He appealed the death sentence, but it was upheld. However, in 2018, Washington State Supreme Court ruled the death penalty as unconstitutional, and therefore his death penalty was commuted to a life sentence without the possibility of parole. He has been convicted 
or linked to 15 murders and one attempted murder in which the victim survived. However, it is believed that he had several other victims prior to 1996 in Washington, Alabama, where he was stationed for a long time and possibly New York because he was stationed there as well. Um, and that he had not been, he's not been convicted of those. His only convictions are in Washington state for these victims. So I'm going to read a list of the victims so that they can be recognized. And that list is Patrick Oliver, Susan Savage, Stacy Hahn, Shannon Zielinski, Heather Hernandez, Jennifer Joseph, Darla Scott, Melinda Mercer, Sean Johnson, Sean McClenahan, Lori Wason, Sunny Oster, Linda Mabin, Melody Murfin, Michelin Durning, and Connie Ellis LaFontaine. He is still alive and serving his life sentence in Washington. So maybe he'll confess to more crimes, uh, the ones in the other states that he's been suspected of, but at this time, those are the only ones that he is being accounted for. So not a nice that guy. Was a gross story. Yeah, no. Yeah. I'd never heard of him before. The one thing I realized, like, while doing this podcast, you kind of see similarities between a lot of these stories. And mm-hmm. there's almost each story, whether it has all of them or just some of them, it's got troubled childhood yeah were once part of the military or like severe mental illness like it's yeah kind of weird There's a lot of this guy these serial killer people there there are and but this guy they didn't really say there wasn't anything that said like he had particularly a troubled childhood like his his parents were together they were uh, he was in the military they were yes, That's they were like a religious family. Oh, it happens yeah. a lot in these cases. It's like, oh, he served for like a year and a half in the Air Force or whatever. Yeah. Or like like the high thigh murders, those were all yeah. done by people yeah. who were active military. Like um, there's a lot of connections throughout our stories that I've started to pick up there on. There is. Yes, unfortunately. Unfortunately. So let's talk about Steve Michalak. McCulloch, sorry. I, I how do you spell up, that? I pronounced the name earlier. M I C H A L A K. McCulloch. It's it looks like Michalak, but it's pronounced McCulloch. Huh. Okay. Okay. Steve and his family lived in River Heights, Winnipeg. In his free time, he enjoyed finding and identifying minerals such as quartz, silver, or gold. He was an amateur geologist, so he liked just studying rocks and stones and things like that. Steve would regularly go to Falcon Lake since it was, an, it, it was easy for him to find different stones and minerals. On a long weekend in 19, 1967, his I'll read you that. 
On a long weekend in 1967, his, he made his way to Falcon Lake, this time looking specifically for quartz vein that contained gold and nickel. While he was unearthing and examining the gemstones, he was startled by a flock of geese that flew directly over his head. He looked up at the geese, and about 45 feet above him sat two cigar-shaped objects hovering in the sky, emitting a bright red glow. He initially assumed the objects were an American experimental aircraft. One of the objects landed on a nearby rocky platform. It, like, began to shape to, like, shapeshift to a disc-shaped object, like the typical flying saucer. Okay. Uh, the other one took off after hovering for a couple minutes, just observing him. Steve observed the craft for about half an hour or so, just long enough for him to make a sketch. And there's pictures of these sketches online that you can look up. I have one oh. pulled up on my other screen right here. And it mm -hmm. it looks just like the typical flying saucer you would think. Like, if I could describe it, it was, it looks like a big bowl with another smaller bowl upside down on top of it. Oh, like, okay. Okay. Like a a dis like a a bowl shaped with like a slight bulge above it. Gotcha. Okay. He approached the craft after making his quick sketch, and he noticed that it had no seams, and it appeared to be one solid object, about forty five feet long and fifteen feet high, which is Ooh. about the size of a yellow school bus. Okay. The object was shifting colors between bluish gray and red. So, like, the the metal, like, you know when you heat up titanium, how it kind of changes colors like that? Like, okay. it goes from, like, a metal-colored gray. It, like, shifts to, like, orange oh, okay. and golds and bluish. Like, so it was that would be that. so cool to see. Shifting. Oh, it, there's video. I want to see that. Up, like, Heat treating titanium, it's kind of what uh -huh. it looks like. Like okay. the metal will go from one color and it'll just start shifting colors. So that's kind of what was going on with this object. That sounds cool. As he got closer, the smell of sulfur grew stronger. According to Steve, he observed that the craft had an open door on its side and he was able to peek inside. He said the inside was just bright lights and within the craft, he could hear the voices of individuals, which were muffled by the sound like the craft was producing. He claimed that the speakers sounded human, but he couldn't like discern what language they were speaking. He also said one had a higher pitch voice than the other. Steve originally tried speaking to them in English, but when he got no reply... Uh, he began trying to speak to them in Russian, Polish, and German, which also got no response. Well, how nice of him to be so multilingual. Yeah. <laughs> so within the craft, uh, McCulloch claimed to have seen light beams and panels flashing various colors. The craft appeared to be empty, and as he walked away, three panels slid to seal the craft. So like when he was looking in it, he could see... They had, like, a door open and, like, three metal doors kind of, like, slid closed as if, like, you know an alien, Ew. how they have little, like, butthole-looking doors where they, like, slide open in kind of like a yeah. circular pattern? 
that's kind of yeah. what we saw where like metal just kind of like slid shut and sealed the craft off. Ooh, I don't like that. Yeah. Uh, so he immediately, like, right after he saw these things close, he went up and, like, touched the craft. And he said that it was so hot that the fingertips of his gloves melted as soon as he touched it. Ew. Yeah. And there's pictures oh, I don't of, like, like that. the gloves that he was wearing. And you can see there's, like, like it, you could tell his, like, fingers kind of melted to the gloves a little bit. Yeah, it's kind of gross. No. McCulloch says the craft then turned counterclockwise, revealing a panel with a grid of holes. Kind of like, it kind of looks like a cheese grater, but like smooth, if that makes any sense. Like, it's just a metal panel with a bunch of holes in a, about an inch by inch grid. Okay. Yeah. Uh. So that like great, it emitted a blast of heat. Like it was like heated gas is what he claimed it as. And it hit him directly in the chest. It blew oh. him backwards and set fire to his clothing. No, no. McCulloch says he immediately tore off the burning clothes as the craft flew away. Steve was disoriented and started feeling super sick. He made his way back to the hotel where he was staying at and ran into an RMPC officer, which is the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. I don't think they ride horses that much anymore, but... It'd be cool if they did. To, I'm pretty sure they're the equivalent to, like, OSP, like Oregon State Police. Like Oh, could be. The staters, yeah. Yeah. So the officer listened to Steve's story and was pretty dismissive about it. He was kind of like, yeah, whatever. And he thought he was drunk at first, but he couldn't smell any alcohol on Steve. So he's like, whatever, your story, you're, you're crazy, whatever. I wonder if he smelled so, like sulfur. That's a good question. The R- there's no reports of that in the RMPC. Like, they smelled there. Well, no, of course yeah. not. He just said he kind of smelled for alcohol and was like, oh, he's... Right. Not like alcohol, so it must be okay. So Steve had experienced burns to his chest and stomach, which matched his claims of being hit by the exhaust panel. And there's pictures of Steve, and it looks like he has like a a, a fully square grid of dots in about an inch distance on his chest, Ooh. where he was hit with the the exhaust. Panels. I don't like that. Yeah. Uh, McCulloch continued to suffer from prolonged bouts of diarrhea, headaches, and blackouts, and continued weight loss, eventually seeking help from the Mayo Clinic. Wow. The clinic report determined that McCulloch was of sound mind. His physical condition following the event was allegedly consistent with radiation poisoning, which is common in a lot of the UFO stories that we see, that there's high amounts of radiation that people are affected by test administered uh, at Pinawa, Manitoba following the incident came up negative for this though. So he was experiencing effects of radiation poisoning, but he didn't have elevated levels of radiation in his body. Interesting. Uh, McCulloch allegedly lost 13 pounds following the incident uh, and his hype, his li- 
Okay, sorry. I, big medical word that I had to reread. Okay. Uh, McCulloch allegedly lost 13 pounds following the incident, and his lymphocyte count drastically fell near to lethal levels. I don't, oh, I'm not no. quite sure what that means, but lymphocytes are the things that fight viruses and shit, right? Infections, yeah. Any yeah. kind of an infection, whether it's bacterial or viral. And if you don't have them, you can't fight off those things. And I think that's what happens. Like if you have cancer and you go on radiation therapy, then I think that goes down. Mm. So that would be consistent with radiation poisoning then. I, I, yeah, I, I would think so. Yeah. So after all this treatment, he continued to have intermittent reappearances of his burns and effects. And he would what? eventually like, yeah. So he'd have bouts where he was okay. And then they'd just reappear like out of nowhere. And then he, like, the burns would come onto his stomach and they'd be like raised like little blister things and this continued until he died in 1991 which is almost 20 years after this event took place oh oh i don't like that at all that yeah. is yucky yeah so it's kind of weird that it, usually when you have an injury it like heals but like this right and you'd think it, it's gone oh Wow. So after his story made rounds in the media, investigators went to the site and found some weird stuff. Hang on, let me read that. After his story made the rounds in the media, investigators went back to the site and found some weird stuff. Analysis of the site yielded unusual results, including a, a four and a half meter circle of unburned, or, sorry. Analysis of the site yielded unusual unusual results, including a four and a half meter circle of burned vegetation at the site where McCulloch claimed the landing occurred. Oh. And the presence of the highly radioactive elements within the soil. So they also tested his clothing too, and they matched the higher levels of radiation that was found in the soil. So the clothes okay, so... that got burnt up from the exhaust. Uh-huh. They tested that in the soil, and they matched with, like, having higher amounts of radiation than the rest of the soil around, like, where he was at. But yet the test on his body was negative for radiation? Yes. So. Wow. Super weird. weird. Uh, metal huh. that was superheated was found to have been melted into cracks of rocks and exhibited high levels of radioactivity as well. So pretty much every like piece of material around him exhibited high amounts of radiation except for except for Steve. So super weird. Weird. That is so He's weird. Like, yeah, it's one of the most reported UFO cases. In Canada, it's kind of like um, Fire in the Sky, but Canada version. Yeah. I forget the guy's name, but. Travis Walton. That movie. Travis Walton, yes. So it's like Canada's Travis Walton, but this dude, like, he got smoked by the exhaust of this UFO, and it ended up giving him, like, lifelong problems. He didn't get taken, though, that he recalls. No. He did not remember okay. being taken. He was investigating. Like, they had their door open, 
and then the door shut and he got blasted by the exhaust while they were taking off. Mm. So that's not yeah, super weird. good. Oh, I don't like that. Yeah. Super there's never really been an explanation for it. So No. And to have those injuries like just randomly come back. And I mean like the the weird part is the injuries come back. The injuries are consistent with radiation poisoning, but he's never tested for high levels of radiation. Right. So it's just kind of so weird. I mean, if you're a skeptic, you could say that he manufactured something to cause the burns and then he would just randomly at different times burn his chest and abdomen to look like the same pattern. But that seems like, I don't know. I mean, people will do anything for attention, but that seems a little odd to me and to have all of those things like the radiation in the soil and in his clothes but not him that's just so weird well i wonder if like the body because i know the body can deal with radiation like it eventually kind of pushes it out like yeah, i don't know how that would work but i don't know wow very strange super funky I don't want anything like that to happen to me. I do have a chaser. So this chaser I saw um, on an article on Good News Network, and it's from TikTok. So a woman posted a video on TikTok that her, I believe it was a Kia Sorento car caught fire and she had a Stanley brand thermos mug sitting in the center console. Have you heard about this? Yeah. And so there were, she shared this thing. She posted it on TikTok and over 84 million shares and over 60,000 comments on just TikTok alone brought the attention to Stanley Company because she posted the video. The video, if you if guys, if you haven't seen it, it's a video of this Stanley brand thermos mug sitting in the center console. The car had caught in fire, but the Stanley mug survived. And she picks it up and says, my mug survived and there's still ice inside and you can hear the ice clattering around in it. So all these shares and all these comments brought the attention of the thermos manufacturer and so they sent her a box of replacement mugs and they bought her a new car. Cool. And I thought that was pretty cool. I was like, dang, yeah. that's pretty that's, nice. Uh, it reminds me a lot of um, Toyota did something very similar. There was, I think it was the 2019 California fires. I don't, I can't remember if it was 2019 or 2020, but there was like, that year that the California the California fires were like way worse than normal. And there was this dude They're always bad. Tacoma Tundra and he was like he made a post and he's like, Oh, I helped get uh, me and my ten neighbors out of the fires in time. And like you can see the side of the truck and all the plastic had burnt off and melted off and like trucks covered oh. in soot and everything. And it's like the tundra is still running strong and Toyota sent him a brand new pickup truck. 
Wow. Yeah, they're like, this that's guy's so cool. cool. So we're just gonna send him a new pickup. But it, yeah, it that's nice. That. That's pretty cool. Also includes cars on fire. Cool. I don't want to have a car on fire. Thanks, but no thanks. No thanks. What's your chaser? My chaser is a watch recommendation for a YouTube stand-up special. So a lot okay. of new comics that are really good comics can't get like like streaming service produced right. stand-up specials. So right. they'll just post them on YouTube. And this one he has a he's the co-host of Shane Gillis's podcast and as you all know oh, I love right. Shane Gillis. Yes. So Matt McCusker, that's Mick Cusker. It's spelled as as if you would say it. He has a sp- stand-up special on YouTube called At the Speed of Light. And it's super fun. Okay. I recommend everyone check it out. It's not PC, oh, cool. so don't expect PC, but neither are we. Nope. Depending we are definitely not PC. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Oh, you better cut that out. <laughs> yeah, I, I hope I did. <laughs> I hope you did too. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, yeah. I guess I that wraps us up for this week. Yes, yes, for sure. All right. Love you, Mom. Love you. Bye. Bye. Hey, friends. Thank you for supporting our podcast. Please share our show with your brutal and bizarre friends. Give us a boozy follow on your favorite podcast platform. If you're feeling extra generous, we'd appreciate a five-star rating or review as well. But maybe do that sober so all the letters are in the right place. You can find all our contact information in the show notes. We love hearing from you, and if you're interested in helping us stock the bar for our future boozy episodes, you can find our Patreon link in the show notes as well.